0: If you're new with us here, I just want to extend you a special welcome. Thank you for spending your Christmas Eve morning with us. And uh, my name is Charles, Charles Johnson. I'm one of the pastors here. You heard Matt earlier. He led us in the confession of sin. He's another confession of sin, assurance of grace. (laughs) He led us in that, and uh, he's another one of the pastors here. Uh, It's good to look out at you this morning. I'm seeing a lot of festive colors Uh, in our wardrobe this morning. That's appropriate. I I threw on a gray jacket before I came in. That's about as fancy as I can do, so I'm sorry for that. Uh, We're spending this Advent series uh, looking at the two Advents that are talked about in the Bible. Uh, There's the first Advent that we are celebrating tomorrow morning. Jesus comes to be with us. Uh, He lives, he suffers, he dies, he rises again. We look with hearts of gratitude toward that first advent, um, but the Bible talks about two there 's a second advent that we look forward to with anticipation of when Jesus will come back to be with us, to rule for us, to make for us his people the new heavens and the new earth and uh, so we 're spending three weeks looking at what the Bible has to say about that. so two weeks ago, we talked about the timing of jesus 's return. Uh, And, you know, the answer to that is nobody knows. (laughs) Nobody knows. Don't believe anybody that says that they know. Uh, But Jesus himself said uh, no one knows when he will return. And so the point is we must be ready. Uh, Last week we looked at what his return will look like. And uh, that's fascinating Uh, literature. It's given to us um, in 1 Thessalonians about uh, what his return looks like when Jesus comes back to be with us. And this morning, we are looking at what his return brings. What is behind this promise of new heavens and new earth that is promised to you and to me? For that, we're looking at beatific words, a prophetic vision in Revelation 21 and 22 and uh, before I read it to you, let me just remind you that this is prophetic literature. There is metaphor, there is symbolism, it is all true. It is all true. Uh, but it's also intended to evoke something in us. It's supposed to uh, stir us up in some way. And so when I read these, two, these words to you, I want to ask you to ask yourself, what is this stirring up in you? Curiosity? Joy? Uh, despair, um, confusion, what, what, what are these words doing to you as I read them? This is Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6, and then I'm going to skip forward to the end of the book and read 22, 17 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who desires take the water of life without price I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, these words are uh, far beautiful, far more beautiful than we can think or imagine, or than I can even describe. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we behold them, and as we seek to behold you, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would help us, help us to see you, that we might be reassured. Uh, that you might nourish us in hope, and that you might help us in this journey of life while we wait for you to come back. And I pray you would help me to speak just with J.B. prayed. I pray that you would help me to speak with clarity, uh, with love for you and for your people, and help me to serve faithfully. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So every good story has us asking the same question. At some point in the story, every good story will have us asking the same question. Does the story end well or does the story end badly? In fact, good writers, whether we're talking about movies or TV shows or books that we read, every good writer has the ability, like most good artists, to kind of hold us in the palm of their hand. They can wind up the tension of a story so tightly that we can begin to believe there's no way that this turns out well. And then somehow somebody does something or figures something out and uh, joy arrives in the most curious of ways. How does this story end well? That's a question we don't just ask when we're looking at a good story, but we ask that question a lot when we're even just thinking about our own lives. When we think about the things that are most important to us, we are asking the same question. When we think about the people that matter to us, our family, or our closest friends. Does that story end well? Does my story end well? What's behind that question? What are we clamoring for when we ask that question? We're looking for hope. Our hearts are geared to hope to want to believe that hope is reasonable. One of the reasons this text is so compelling is because it is telling the Christian that hope is reasonable, that the story ends well. Why? It is all bound up in who God is. It is all bound up in his character. Because it is telling us that God is a promise keeper, it is telling us that God is more than capable, and it is telling us that God is generous with his good gifts to his people. Let me work through those three, uh, uh, one after another. First, God keeps his promises. He's the promise keeper. Uh, Let me talk about the problem, and then I'll talk about the promise You can't um, read the Bible, if you start at the beginning, you won't read it for very long before you come across a problem, right? Um, uh, In Genesis chapter 2, God creates Adam and Eve, they're our ancestors, and uh, and he puts them in this idyllic place that he built for them, perfectly for them, uh, where they are to live out a perfect fellowship with each other and they're to live out a perfect fellowship with God. Everything about their place and their relationships were perfect. In fact, Adam and Eve were built for relationship with God. That's what they that's what they were built for. That was a part of the longing of their heart and they were they were given each other to enjoy and uh, to live in deep committed life together and to do good work that God had given to them to subdue it and uh, and rule over the garden to enjoy the garden and to enjoy this uh, this God that they were created for, and so He gave them many things, but probably most importantly, God gave them Himself. Fast forward a chapter, and you see that every good thing that God gave to His people become affected when sin enters the world. Sin enters into Adam and Eve's hearts and into their actions. It affects the garden. It affects Adam and Eve's relationship with each other. And, of course, it affects their relationship with God. This thing that they were, this place that they were created for, this work that they were created for, and, of course, the relationship with the God that they were created for was all violated by the fall. And the Bible would say that every... Every schism we observe, either individually in our lives, between us as people, globally, can trace its roots to that great schism that that happened in Genesis chapter 3. And healing that, in many ways, is the sum of the Christian hope. This division that existed between God and man. That's the problem. That's the problem. And that's why this promise is so radiant to us that we see. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look at this with language. Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The promise as it's given to us is to heal an age-old problem. And this is a promise that we see here in Revelation, but it's actually, it's actually the echo of a promise that's been made throughout, throughout the eternity of humanity's relationship with God. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This would not have been new words for God's people. In Genesis chapter 17, God made that same... We call it the covenantal formula. God made that same commitment to Abraham. I will be their God and they will be my people. In Exodus chapter 6, God made that same commitment, this promise. I will be their God and they will be my people. The prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah echoed the same promise. These are the echoes of a promise to heal what was broken in Eden. In fact, I would even say that this text is actually loaded with expli- explicit Old Testament references to promises that God has made to His people. It's loaded with them of th- these promises that God of things that God will do. The sea will be no more. Well, that's straight out of Daniel chapter seven. The sea is the abyss. It's this realm of the dead. The sea will cease to exist, is what it says, straight out of Daniel chapter seven. The new heavens and the new earth, the holy city, they were first held as visions by the prophet Isaiah. And so all all of this, this whole text is loaded up with, with references to these timeless or ancient promises that God had made. And it's as if God is saying to us, you know those promises that I gave you? Those promises that transcend generations, that transcend geography, that transcend cultures and ethnicities, you know those promises? Those promises still stand. They, they don't have an expiration date. God is saying, those, my word, those promises I made to my people matter as much to me as they do to you. And Jesus is given to us as the person that exists between the problem and the promise. Because by sending Jesus, his own son, to deliver them, uh, he's sending them to deliver us from the thing that was broken. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God has come to be with us. John chapter 1 tells us that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and that Jesus is this hinge point that exists right between the problem and the promise. And when you look at this text, it's, you, you know, that language with us um, <clears throat> and among us uh, that is rich language. But actually, when you look at this text, you actually see, a, you get a sense for the kind of deep, union God intends for his people. Look at verse 17. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. He is using marriage language to describe our relationship with Jesus. The bride is us. The spirit and the bride say come. He's talking about his church. The bride is us. And, and, uh, and God's promise to you is something akin to the promises that we see on a wedding day. And that's, that's really a helpful metaphor for us to understand it. Because listen, when you go to a wedding, what you observe is a bride and a groom staking the rest of their lives together on promises that they make for each other that day. The joy of their future has a lot to do with how much they honor the words that are spoken to each other that day. And so the question for you, if this is given to us, uh, making the case that God is the promise keeper he, he tells us these words are trustworthy and true. Later in 22, you have those words. Don't alter these words. See, this is why he warns against don't alter, alter these words. He's protecting the integrity of this word. If he's saying these promises are still good, they're still true, and I am the promise keeper, the question I think for you and me is do we believe that? Do you really trust? that God is the promise keeper. Do you really trust Jesus' words when he says, I will be with you always until the end of the age and when Jesus says, I am coming back for you, do you really believe that's true? Do you trust that his promises for you are far greater than you could ever hope or imagine, do you believe that's true? You know, all this is moot if he's not capable. Like you can have high integrity and not, not be capable, right? In fact, that, that's the story of, of much of the Greek mythology that a lot of these, a lot of these readers would have, uh, would have already known about and would have been familiar with when they read these prophetic visions. You know, there's stories about gods that were like, there weren't many, but there were gods that were of high character, but weren't capable of much. And then you had gods that were very, very capable, but their character couldn't be trusted. But the proposition that's given to you, not just here, but really throughout the Bible is that God is both, that he is someone of high character, someone whose character is beyond impeachment, but also that he is supremely capable, that he is sovereign. Uh, Look look at the claims made about what God is actually capable of doing. The first first claim of God's uh, ability is that with him, with Jesus coming back and the promise of the new heavens and the new earth is is the end of all sadness. The end of all sadness. That There will never be sadness anymore. And, And I want you to see, I want you to see the in, kind of intimate way, the tender care described behind God removing all sadness. It says that God will wipe away every tear. Now, think about your life and think about how many people in your life feel like that you would, that you would welcome them wiping away your tears, okay? Like there are probably one or two, right? It's going to be somebody that you're very close to that you very trust, that you trust, that whose face you would hold in your hand, and uh, and 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 you would feel okay with them wiping away your tears. There aren't there aren't many, and there are probably not many people that that you should wipe away their tears. Right? This is this is intimate business that's being talked about here. That God actually holds our face and wipes away our tears, and, and not just that, He doesn't just wipe away our tears. He wipes away every tear. No more tears. No more tears. That's the promise. You know, we uh, naturally live our lives by the equation of I'm just doing the best I can to increase happiness and decrease sadness. And some of us are more successful than others. Some of us are more inclined to happiness than others. And, 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 and all that's fine, okay? But none of us have ever achieved the end of sadness for ourselves or for those that we love. But that's the promise. The promise is the end of sadness. What's the next promise? The next one. The next promise is the end of death. Now, this is another thing that we would do for ourselves if we could. And we've made great gains in being able to prolong life Uh, not a week goes by where I don't get an email from somebody I love about something I should be doing to make my life last a little longer. But we've never actually been able to do away with death, ever. But what Isaiah 25 calls death the shroud that envelops all people. But look at what it says. It says, death shall be no more. No more death. No more, ever. And if there's no more death, then there's no more mourning. And let's talk about pain. We've learned to mitigate pain. Uh, we've learned to cope with pain to a certain extent. Um, we've even learned to medicate, m- medicate pain, but some of the ways that we've learned to deal with pain, in a lot of ways, can lead to more pain down the road and not less. That's a story we hear often. I'll tell you, um, some of you know that I was getting some dental surgery not too long ago. And if you want to talk about pain, let's just talk about tooth pain for a minute, okay? <laughs> so, like, how does something so little, like, render you completely in- incapacitated, right? Like that. And uh, I had a tooth that was cracked, had to be uh, extracted. It was emergency surgery. And uh, thank you, Matt, for preaching for me that week. That was just brutal. And, uh, and the doctor gave me a couple of pain pills. Uh, enough for, Not many, but enough for a couple of days, Right. And, uh, and they tell you when they give you these things, don't make any major decisions in life and don't operate any heavy machinery. You probably have all heard this before. Like, that includes your car. Don't do anything. Don't do anything that requires you to be high-functioning, you know? And I don't understand why anybody would want to because all I wanted to do was sleep. But, of course, I have to talk on the phone every now and then. And, um, and whenever I did, I told people, hey... I, uh, I just want you to know I'm on some pain meds right now. <laughs> and uh, if I'm making less sense than I normally do, then, then that's why. And almost to a person, uh, and these are some of you, they said to me, you need to be careful with that stuff. Be real careful. And then proceeded to tell me a story about how they, themselves, or someone they loved... Really struggled with having pain pills and being able to get off of them because they're just so addictive. Why? Because eliminating pain is something that's actually deep in our hearts. It is something that we long for to live a life without pain. We long to live a life, whether it's, you know, whether we're talking about despair, heartache, physical pain, we long for that life. It's promised to you, right here. And the point that I'm trying to make over and over and over again is we live our lives trying to actually work around these realities. The promises that are given to us, we would do for ourselves if we could. But we already know we can't. But God is saying, I'm capable of doing that. I'm capable of building a world, of assuring a future for you where there is no more sadness and no more death and no more pain. How do we know that? How do we know? Because Jesus came, he lived, he died, and he rose again. It is fascinating to consider that Jesus endured everything that he promises the end of. That he comes into the world and he has a real body, a body that experienced pain and frailty and fatigue. When his friend died, what did he do? He grieved and he wept. When he looked at the state of Jerusalem and the state of his people, what did he do? He grieved and he wept. And he really died. And when he rose again, what he was declaring was the triumph over death and pain and sadness and mourning. He was declaring this triumph over that. And what he is saying to you, his people right now, he is saying that you share in my victory. That just as you are bound or united to me by faith, this victory over the grave extends to you. In fact, sharing, <laughs> sharing is actually a really good way of understanding this. Jesus isn't just displaying his victory. He's actually sharing his victory with you. Uh, it's like he's very generous. And in fact, that's the idea that you get throughout this text. Uh, if you look at verse 2, the holy city is coming down out of heaven from God. God makes it. And then it's being described as a, as a gift that he's giving to his people. And then in verse 6, he says this, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Did you catch that? Without payment. Uh, the whole thing gives you the impression that God is exceedingly generous with his people. Uh, Look at the invitation in verse 17. It's grabbing these same words. Also, we reference this as in Isaiah 12 in our call to worship. It's picked up again in Isaiah 55, this whole idea. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The water of life is offered without price and without payment. There are all kinds of references to this water of life throughout the Bible. You see it in all kinds of places. But you know where my favorite one is? This is in John chapter 4. When Jesus is uh, at a well talking to a woman uh, that was disparaged in her town. Uh, This was a woman that, that, uh, that the townspeople were suspicious of. And they would be suspicious of anybody that would talk to her. But to Jesus, that doesn't seem to matter. And at some point in the conversation... He says to her, if you really knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for water. And he would have, hear it, he would have given you living water. That's the promise of Jesus. Give it away. Why is it without price? Well, because payment has been made. Payment has been made. When Jesus died on the cross, he was offering a payment for all the sins that existed since Genesis chapter 3. He was offering the atoning sacrifice for his people. He was making payment. And now his grace given to you, he has paid for it. And you belong to him. And you are free. And these promises are for you. You know why hope is reasonable? You know why hope is reasonable? Because it doesn't have anything to do with how good you are. It has everything to do with God's character, his generosity, his promise keeping, his integrity, and his ability to secure us to his people. That's why hope is reasonable. Hope is reasonable because of who God is. And because he loves you and redeems you to himself, that's why hope is reasonable. And so, what's left for us? What's left for us? Well, we join the choir of the people who sing, "Come." We join the choir of the people who sing, "Come." What do the people of God say? They say, "They say, come." And 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 as far as I can tell, that that invitation to come, uh, we say it in two different directions. The first is we say it to those who don't yet know the water of life. We say, Come to those who are thirsty. And together we look to Jesus and we say, Come, Lord Jesus, and renew all things. We are waiting for you. We see, Come to those who don't know Jesus. And we see, Come to Jesus and say, Come, Lord Jesus, come. We are waiting for you. And then it looks like Jesus joins the chorus. And he says, come, I am coming soon. We sing come and Jesus says, I am coming soon. We join the choir and we sing, come Lord Jesus. It becomes the background music of our hearts. And what do I mean by that? Well, background music tells us what's coming, right? Uh, let me close this way. I was, um, this was a few days ago. I was in a room in my house, just watching TV. It was at night. I was just unwinding, watching TV. And uh, one of my sons was in the room demonstrating by his uh, example that there were better ways to spend my time by reading a book. You know, So, so he's in there reading a book. I'm just kind of zoning out. And uh, at some point he, I don't even think he looked up from the book. He just said something bad's about to happen. And I looked and sure enough, he was right. And I looked at him and And I said, How could you tell? And he said, The music changed. I knew what was coming. Let me just ask you what is the background music of your heart saying to you right now? What does it tell you about what's coming? Is it playing something ominous that tells you you need to be afraid? Or is it playing something triumphant? that tells you Jesus is coming and with him comes the renewal of all things. Is it teaching you to sing? Come, Lord Jesus. And can you hear Jesus sing back to you? I am coming sing. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you will come and make us faithful in waiting for you. We pray for your help, for your nourishment as we go to your table, uh, that you would nourish us in this hope that you call us to. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.